This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. There is obviously a great deal of data that is coming along with the coronavirus pandemic, but the understanding of it all varies as we move forward. And the fluctuating nature of the rise or fall in cases has the understanding of the data seemingly changing by the day. Adi Weiner is a statistics professor here at the Wharton School. He's also faculty lead of the Wharton Sports Analytics and Business Initiative. And you also hear him as one of the hosts of Moneyball each and every week here on Sirius XM 132. Adi, my friend, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, Dan? Uh, I'm hanging in there. Uh, hanging in there. So, yeah. so give us this, your sense and your thoughts on all of the data that has been coming forth and, and, and the understanding, or maybe even at times lack of understanding, uh, of truly getting a sense of what this data means. Well, there's lots of data, almost, almost too much of it. This is, in some level, good times for explainers of statistics, but uh, poor times for making good forecasts because the data doesn't want to cooperate. One of the worst problems with the data is there's so much geographic diversity, and that's within the United States and abroad, so you don't always know what the data means. There's differences in testing strategies. We talked about the last time I was on. Sometimes um, very widespread testing is done so that there's low threshold for being qualifying for a, a, a coronavirus test. In other places, there's, there's shortages, so you have to be quite sick in order to get one, so that really changes the numbers of cases, because cases that are mild tend to not get reported if the testing isn't as, as universal. Then you also have delays in, in aggregation. Lots and lots of our cases and deaths in particular are aggregating in nursing homes and facilities and jails. We, we talk about meatpacking in and, and certain industries. They often don't get reported until they kind of get uh, decided upon and moved in at once. So you have, have this sort of bumpy nature to the, to the, the time trends. And, and also you have a huge heterogeneity. So some places like Washington State, California, were way ahead of the curve. Other places are, were had, you know, big run-ups like in Louisiana and then back, you know, retreats. And others are just sort of chunking along at different rates. When you superimpose these things, it's very hard to, to determine a clear signal. And, you know, the United States as a whole, we're going down. But in certain places, it's been steady and even rising slightly, as, for example, California. So it's really hard to make solid sense out of that. And if you look at some people's forecasts, you know, two weeks ago, the University of Texas model was saying certain places were 100% probability past their peak, and now they're 21% probability or some other number, not 100%. And you wonder, well, how did that happen? Well, the data just turned around and really surprised them. I would think that at least right now where we are, having a better or best case scenario of understanding the data becomes that much more important because of the fact we're starting to hear about states wanting to to open up uh, their economies or at least portions of their economies. Yeah, and it's not the thing is it's not the problem is not so much the data. I think the local in, local communities have a much better handle on their data than what we what we're seeing sort of nationally because of the the aggregation problem. And I actually think that the local places are are best situated to make their own decisions about what kinds of uh, openings they wish to take. The problem that we're hearing in this United States is that it's becoming so politicized, and they're politicizing the data. And that's the thing that that's very disappointing as a, as a statistician. The facts um, <laughs> they just don't care about what side of the political aisle you're on. Yeah. So what you do with the facts that matter. And and so I, I was just I, I have a, I have cousins who live in Montreal and, and on our family. 
in a group chat, they mentioned that Montreal is opening their schools on May 19th. So I thought to myself, we're nowhere near opening our schools here. No one's thinking about that. And I went to the local newspapers and I saw what Quebec is saying and doing. And, and Quebec is, is, is almost exactly situated like, like Pennsylvania, roughly the same population, yeah. roughly the same number of cases, roughly the same number of de- deaths more or less the same trajectory sort of went up rapidly and is sort of stabilized while not moving down. If anything, they're going up. Yet there's no, they don't have this contentiousness about what to do with this information, what it means and what they should do with it. People trust their government. They trust that the people making decisions from the data are doing the right things with this. If I took that same data and said, open the schools here in Pennsylvania, what do you think would happen? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke, right? Yeah. People would, would think that I'm that I'm some sort of uh, that I'm some sort of fanatic who doesn't believe the virus exists. Yeah. Even even more tellingly, uh, this is I, I stumbled on this on a Canadian website. The public news and 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 the epidemiologists, are, doctors are telling people something that's very true, which is that if you're not, you know, that the virus has a huge, huge differential rate at which it impacts people. And we talked this I talked about it on your show once before. Now it's even more known. Yeah. It's not just it's in fact it's stunningly different. I was talking to some doctors about this. This is certainly not my my area, but I just report what I see in the data. Stunningly different. You, they can't name a, a virus an infection anything that has such a disproportionate effect based on age. We know that older people often get more sick. We also know that people who have comorbidities get more sick. Yeah. But nothing like this. Nothing is even remotely like this. The coronavirus at eight for people 20 years and younger is easily transmitted and, eff- and infected, which is a real problem because they carry it, right? But there's almost no chance, that, no, almost no chance, a 95% chance that they have no symptoms or very so, symptoms so mild that you don't see it. And essentially, not zero, but extremely small chance of hospitalization or, or death. That starts to rise, but it doesn't really start to rise substantively until you know, middle age. By the time you're in your 50s, you're, you're probably as likely as not to develop symptoms if you get it. Yeah. But if you're otherwise healthy, chance of hospitalization is small, death even smaller. And in Canada, they're not afraid to tell you this. We're joined by Adi Weiner, who's a statistics professor here at the Wharton School, faculty lead in the Wharton Sports Analytics and Business Initiative. And you also hear him as one of the hosts of Moneyball every week here on Sirius XM 132. You know, one of the stories we talked about, Adi, the other day was uh, the move by the FDA now to have more data coming from uh, pharma companies about the antibody testing that's coming out. And and uh, obviously this is, uh, you know, a, a potential therapy that we're talking about in terms of, uh, of trying to help with this. But again, the data seemingly is showing that a lot of these antibody tests may not be as good as, uh, as they would claim them to be. Okay. So this is, this, I'm going to have to give it, I'm going to have to introduce a quick statistic lesson. Um, when we do testing, when, when we do, when this is a fundamental um, part of statistical analysis and science, we have something called specificity and, and sensitivity. And in this particular case, specificity is essentially the chance that if you actually have antibodies in your body, that's what we would call positive, you're actually positive for antibodies, that the result actually indicates positive. Right. And so the specificity numbers are usually pretty high, uh, 90, 95%, 99%, or even higher. The problem is, is that sounds good, right? 98, 95, 99% specificity. And a lot of the tests that are out there are, have those numbers. They haven't been vetted by the FDA because they were given exemptions to go into the market quickly. Although at this point, the FDA is, is, um, is rethinking that and is forcing certain, certain companies, certain t- tests to actually be approved. So they let them out there with 95 or even in some cases 
misadvertise specificities. But let me tell you why that's bad. Because if it's a 95 or even a 98% specificity, if the prevalence of positive in the, in the population at large is only 3 or 4 or 5%, and the specificity is 98%, what that means is it's highly likely that if you do test positive, that it is actually a false positive, which means you don't actually have the, virus, the, 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 uh, the antibodies, and you aren't necessarily, potentially, and we don't even know this for sure, um, resistant. And that's the problem. So you really need specificities that, that approach 100%. And there are some yes. tests that are much higher. Now, in a place like New York City, where it's thought that over 20% of the people have actually been exposed, had the, had the disease, even if they didn't show symptoms, and do have the antibodies, then if uh, a 99, 99% specificity means it's actually quite likely that you do have the antibodies if you show up positive. And it turns out that here and even in, in, in Philadelphia, in our, in our local neighborhoods, getting to be pretty easy. You can sign up and get an appointment and come into a, a very sterile lab environment and get yourself an antibody test in the in and out in about 10 minutes. Yeah. So a lot of people want this because they thought they got corona and they want to know whether they've had it, in which case that can really change, that can potentially change the way they behave. So that's why it's so important to make sure your test has a very high specificity and it is really, really well tested. Sensitivity is the other side. That's the, that's the chance that if you do have the positive, um, that you show up negative, right? Uh, that means that it's false negative. You actually have them, but you showed up negative. That's less of a concern because it's not going to lead to a bad outcome for you right. individually. You're not going to expose yourself, even though you would potentially be immune. And um, it also tends to undercount things rather than overcount them. So we tend to be less concerned about the other side of the, of the coin, the, specific, the sensitivity part. Ideally, a good test is one that has 100% or 99.5% specificity, and one that has sensitivity in the 90s. That's what you're looking for. And they are available. That information is available. You can get it about the test. If you find yourself in a center and they're giving you a test, find out what brand it is, who approved it, look it up online, and you can get those two numbers you're looking for above 99%, hopefully even higher for specificity. Let me let me ask you one other thing that uh, it's important to me because I have three kids. Uh, and I know you wanted to talk about it, is the fact that we're getting closer to, to summertime, and that usually is a time where you see a lot of kids going to summer camp. Uh, now, the yep. summer camp that I went to as a kid up in uh, New York State, up on Lake Champlain, has already said that they are closed for the year. They're not going to open. The summer camp up in Maine that my kids go to uh, has not made the decision yet, but the governor up there is is asking now for a two-week quarantine on people coming into the state. So how are camps going to be dealing with all of this? Well, this is a complicated issue, and it's complicated by a lot of factors. Some of it's politics. Uh, some of it is uncertainty, and, and some of it is just plain risk management. And what benefit are you getting for the cost, right? You have to think about all those things simultaneously. So, and this is the real issue. So Maine, for example, has almost no cases right now. So they're not exactly thrilled to have people coming from other parts of the country, bringing in new cases and potentially creating uh, new outbreaks in their towns. Camps, I think, are in somewhat of a special circumstance. First of all, we're talking about, uh, you know, eight to eight weeks from now, maybe six to eight weeks from now, which is hopefully things will be better. Yeah. One thing that I'm noticing about uh, well, let's just put, let's just go talk about this, the camps directly. In six to eight weeks, we can expect most of the most of the we've all been quarantined or um, and or isolated for for months at this point. Now, hopefully, in the communities, the the the, the presence of, of the virus is very very low to very small. 
the issue with camps is that, the, as I said earlier, kids essentially have no risk, and neither do their staff, who are, tend to be you know, young people. Yeah. And if you take that into consideration, you recognize there's no mortality, there's almost no, no substantive health risk to the individual. So where, where become, what is the risk? Well, the risk is that they get the, uh, they, there's an outbreak at the camp, doesn't hurt any of the people there, but, they come, but it spreads to everybody there. Sure. Now you have a pocket of infection. Now they go back to their communities and they go and they spread it wildly. Widely, that's the concern that that you're. It's almost like a, a super spreader event. My tech, my belief is that camp has great benefits, um, and if if those if those risks are properly managed, that there's there's you can find a way to open camps. Maybe not the whole summer, maybe not for the under the full program, but you can find a way to, to open camps. Maybe not camps everywhere. Um, and then this would pop, and one of the reasons why I believe that's possible is that you could potentially you can safely quarantine essentially the entire camp. So if there's right. an outbreak, you can burn itself out there. As I said, it's critical to remember that that children basically don't get this. Not that they never don't. They're not they always don't. Sometimes they do. But there are problems at camps. People, people, you know, they drown. They, there's all kinds of other issues at camps, and I don't think that the coronavirus for the individuals. Go there are the um, is the risk. The risk is for when they come home and spread it to their to the to the at risk people in their own neighborhoods. Yeah. And that's the the concern, and that's probably the reason why when they when decisions are finally made, they will be made that way because of risk to other people. But you have to understand how those risks are calculated. We don't really have good ways to do that properly. We don't know how effective social distancing is is, and to top it off, it's really. We don't even know how well we're doing it here. So we're going to not send kids away to camp where they have an amazing summer, not be at risk to themselves, because we're worried that when they come back, they'll spread a virus when people here are not doing what they're supposed to be doing anyway. Adi, is always great to talk with you. Uh, Next time, we're going to talk a little sports, because I know there's some fun things that uh, we should address in that area. But as always, great to talk to you and uh, be safe. Yeah, great to talk to you. Okay, take care. Adi Weiner from here at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.